Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about the films nominated for Best Picture. This is our third entry in the 1963 series. And today's film is How the West Was Won. Nothing. Is that a, are you asking no, me No, I was just I was a, waiting okay. for the, the, the rupturous applause to the mightiest adventure ever filmed with over oh. 24 great stars in the epic ensemble cast. Oh, I the see. The Nashville of 1963. You were, you were looking for anticipation yes. and got none. Yeah, no. I see. Uh-huh. That's, that's, I think, apropos to start this particular episode. Ouch. All right. <laughs> Wait, Ken, do you not like this? I guess we'll get into it, but that's interesting. Okay. I didn't, yeah, I didn't love it. We'll talk about it. Ken's Ken. already started rewriting How the West Was Won. Um, moving on <laughs> from that I've Titanic mixed... script. I was just about to say I'm blending the two. Uh-huh. I'm just going to mix them together. So How the West Was Won was made on a budget of $15 million, which again, with my really crude conversion, is about $150 million by today's standards, ends up grossing 50, sorry, $50 million which is about $500 million. So it was a second highest grossing movie of 1963 behind Cleopatra. And that would also make it the, I believe the second most expensive movie of the year, probably behind Cleopatra. <laughs> Cleopatra. <laughs> but half, which it sounds like about half is expensive, but, but just as successful. Yeah. You could have made like a six hour Western for what they got Cleopatra for. Is this also the shortest movie we've watched so far in this series, despite being two hours and four? So that far. is correct. That is correct. Okay, just just double yeah. check it. Check. <laughs> no, that math. was just okay. you because you watched it on two point speed. <laughs> you need uh, to let this go. Um, Are you gonna bring this up every time we watch a long movie? You're just gonna bring up that I, I did that this not, once and I'm gonna keep asking about Ken's Titanic script too. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so, how the West was won? Nominated for eight Academy Awards including Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Music, lost all those, and it won Best Writing, Story or Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. So it's a winner of three Oscars that year. Curiously not nominated for Best Director. We have three directors on this film because of its How they have done that? five-part yeah. style. Yeah, so I think they kind of just took a pass on that one. Um, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. Haunted. Just we'll throw it to Otto Preminger again. He he seems to get in there. Um, <laughs> and the film was selected in 1997 by the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Um, perhaps the other thing that you would have known about this movie, other than that everybody was in it, is that it was shot in Cinerama. Yeah. Ken, what's Cinerama? It, so, well, the Cinerama used in the, in the case of this film... Uh, they're using essentially a, a three cameras to shoot the scenes, and then they're splicing them together, um, editing as far as editing them together. My understanding is in the theaters themselves, you had to show these in, on, in, in some theater designed to showcase Cinerama. They would also be projected on three projectors. Yes. So the theater had to be set up so that the, the movie could be displayed using the three projectors. And in some of the scenes, you can actually see. Yes. The, the, <laughs> you can actually, if you look closely enough, several, in particularly the first section, I noticed, I think, more um, in several of the scenes with the river in the background. You can kind of just see where the where the overlap or where the seam is between the three images um and it also creates this almost 
I don't want to say fish lens effect, but almost mm-hmm. that almost that effect in the sense that it it's um, somebody called it's it supposed to be on a curved. It's supposed to be a. It's supposed to be screened on a curved right, screen, right? And you can tell because if you're watching it on a flat screen, it has a natural curve to the image. Yeah. So the the screens that they were projected on had a hundred and forty six degree like curve to it, um, because it was so, so wide that if you projected it onto a flat screen, it formed what they call somebody called smilorama because it looks <laughs> it looks weirdly like the the image is sort Bent. of bowing out to the sides. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's really obvious. The closer you get to the camera, the more obvious it is. Which you'll notice yeah. there's not really any close-ups in this movie for that reason um but that's that might i didn't know any of this that's really interesting yeah did you notice when you were watching it that some of the times it looked bowie or that could you could see those kind of fissures among the third that ken was talking about did you not really but like had we had this conversation before i watched it i might have been looking Mm. for more because as I normally do, I have the movie on on mute right now as we're talking. And, like, Jimmy Stewart just kind of rolled up yeah. his canoe. And, like, the front of his canoe is, like, in the foreground of the shot. And he's kind of in the background of the shot. It's kind of like a diagonal him across mm-hmm. the frame. And, like, it does look a little, you know, I mean, there's there's some forced perspective stuff going on in that shot. But, like, it does seem a little, maybe a little off. And it's probably explained by the, the ultra-wide setup. Yeah, and there's some other strange things that we'll get to later that... I found it kind of fascinating that they made this choice in the sense that it forces the filmmakers to make some very bizarre and creative solutions to it, some of which I think work better than others. But at the at the beginning, the very first shot, the very last shot that are very obviously done from a helicopter because you can see... Right. The reflection of the helicopter. Yeah. And there's dirt and there's on dirt the lens in both the first that. shots and the I last shots. I'm like, guys, I, I said to my, how much are you spending on this movie? Can you just rub, yeah. take a little rag and smudge off the lens and just do another pass in the helicopter? Come I seriously, now. I looked at my dog and I'm like, is that shit on the lens? Like, well, I couldn't believe it. Um, so amateur. And what did Cooper say? Um, not much. He didn't have much to add. But okay. Uh, okay. here's the thing about the, we have to understand that. Cinerama is kind of like Technicolor was a decade before or decade and a half before this. It's like a new thing that they've been experimenting with for the last few years. And in particular, they like to use this on epics, large, any any film that, that is large enough, and not just dramas, because Cinerama is also used the same year for um, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which also coincidentally stars Spencer Tracy. Um, although he's, I guess, the narrator in this movie, he's actually in that movie. Um, it's also used in another western, which is a technically a parody called the um, the Hallelujah Trail, which I believe is the year maybe after this or the couple years after this. Um, the thing about those two films, though, they managed to develop a, a way of filming in Cinerama with only one camera, um, and so those films do look slightly different than this one. Mm-hmm. They don't require um, showcasing on a curved screen. You are able to screen it on a flat, project it onto a flat screen or flat surface. So it doesn't have the quite the same effect. Um, this one, it if you're not expecting it, it can kind of, there are some scenes where you're just, it takes you out of it for a moment because the, the scene just looks a little wonky. Positions of the characters relative to one another it just looks a little off. Uh, I was thinking as I was watching it, you know, why would you make this choice? Because immediately when it goes home, no one's going to have a 
TV projector setup to be able to watch it. But I was like, oh yeah, 1963, no one was buying the Blu-ray four, four months later. You know, that right. wasn't a thing. Yeah, no, so they're not thinking at all that people are watching this from home because it's not even, they're not even thinking about distributing it to the network. Exactly. Yet. Yeah. And, and I think that's precisely one of the reasons behind the choice of Cinerama and the choice to put like everybody in Hollywood in this movie is kind of like we talked about last week in Cleopatra. They're very much um, competing with television and what can film do that television can't do. Well, here's one television can't give you super, super widescreen with these vast on set. This movie was shot on set. These are sorry on, on location, these vast right. on location vistas and film stars didn't, didn't go back and forth between television and movies like they do a lot now. You know, you might see Nicole Kidman in a movie theater, literally in the AMC commercial, but in a, in a, <laughs> in a movie and then go home and see her on eight, nine perfect strangers or whatever it was right in the sixties. You weren't going to, you weren't going to yeah. do that. Um, right. So right. TV, TV, any TV actors that may have appeared in a film, they're smaller parts. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think a good approach to this I want to ask one more question before we get into the nitty gritty of the plot, but I think a good approach is since it's in five parts, we'll just kind of take it each part at a time. Um, The first question though, I want to ask before we get into part one is just initial impressions. What are your, your first thesis thoughts about how the West was won? Josh, you start. Um, I was thinking a lot of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as I watched (laughs) this, but I think I probably had that backwards because most people saw this before they saw Buster Scruggs, and I did not. I saw Buster Scruggs before I saw this. Um, I, I guess I always knew this movie as a title, and just an old western, one of one of the ubiquitous westerns from you know the fifties or sixties. I couldn't have told you when this came out until we decided on this year. Um, I had no idea how many people were in this. I had no idea what exactly this was about. I had no idea this was a anthological movie, which is why I voted Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is also uh, five little mini movies pushed together into one movie, as this one is. Um, this one has more connected tissue than that because there are characters that appear over multiple um, episodes, for lack of a better term. Um, I guess my initial impression is I liked this. I thought this was pretty good, um, and maybe maybe it's because like. You know, we've been watching some long movies, and I saw that this one was also a long movie, but it's it's just kind of more digestible when it's in smaller mm. chunks. So um, it maybe there's less fluff. It's just you know you got to get right to it for a forty minute story, forty five minute story tops, and then get in, get out. You know, what's this? Uh, the the point may, maybe is a little clearer. Like I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get what the story's going for, and then it's fun to like think of the connective tissue between the five and like. Um, I was kind of thinking how this could be like a this little episode we have here could be like a mini mini series because it's like, we'll talk about five segments then maybe talk about them in the mm-hmm. aggregate, which is what we usually do for the five best picture nominees. And then our recap episode. So like, I don't know. I'm pretty excited yeah. to talk about it. I guess is my initial thought. I'm going to throw over to Ken, but I realized I never do this. Um, here's what this movie is. A, yeah. <laughs> a family saga covering several decades of Western westward expansion in the 19th century, including the gold rush, the civil war and the building of the railroads. That's very general because I think the details of the plot are better focused on, like I said earlier in chunks, but that's generally what this, what this film is. Ken, your initial thoughts on how the West was won. I think you had seen this before, right? I, I had seen this before once before. I'll be honest. I don't know that I watched the entire thing in that one sitting, but it was one of those, it was on like TCM or AMC or something. And I think I watched it with my dad. Uh, this was, we were probably, I was probably 
I don't even know if I was in high school yet, so it's been at least probably 20-ish years. Um, and I just remember it being one of those, like, The Longest Day, which is a war picture from the same era. It's just got a lot of people in it, a lot of stars of the era, and they flit in and out, some of them in small cameos, despite the fact that they're big stars. The standout I remember about this film was the fact that Debbie Reynolds is the big star who appears in multiple chapters, Mm -hmm. and you've got Spencer Tracy narrating the whole thing for you, uh, usually at the beginning of each chapter. Um, I also remember thinking about, at the time I watched it, that this is supposed to be an epic in, in scale and scope, TJ, to your point. I think the timeline is like 1830s to 1890s, so we're talking like a 60-year span of the American West, more or less, um, following the Prescott-Rawlings uh, Van Van Valen, I think, fam, uh, depending on, on what names people are going by uh, at what stage of their life. Van Valen, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's also a film that, despite the fact that it's supposed to be an epic, I'm often struck by the fact that by splitting it up into these chapters, I find that the chapters are a bit rushed. Mm. And we're trying to tackle Some of them. a lot yeah. of material, a lot of time into these shortened little chapters. And it kind of, I don't know, lessens the epic feel of the story because I feel like I'm not really getting a whole lot. Um, it's just like little spurts and little moments and they happen so quickly with not a ton of development. And you have to kind of fill in the, the extras. You have to fill in information for yourself as to what's going on in between the chapters. And... Um, it just, I don't know, it, it doesn't perfectly, I think, blend together for me. It just kind of jumping from chapter to chapter, time period to time period, and I think it loses something in doing that. I get what they're trying to do, but it, this film may be, I guess what I'm saying is, ironically, this film may have benefited from being a little longer. I was just going to say, what I'm hearing from you is you want a Cleopatra runtime on this. I mean, if you if they had... Too honestly, short. I think both uh-huh. of these films would have been better if they had swapped... Swapped run times. times. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, you might be right, honestly. Or maybe released the way they almost released Buster Scruggs, where you would sure. just kind of do this as a miniseries. Uh, sure. I think, I mean, ironically at the time, of course, that's, that's on nobody's mind, right? Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, today, I think this is something that probably would drop on, on Amazon or Netflix or something mm-hmm. and probably would play pretty well, maybe. I might get all, You might get more people willing to tune in. Yeah. Small acts didn't play. It wasn't didn't do gangbuster numbers among audiences, even though critics. Loved and that's it. I was gonna say that's small acts being the the series of five films that Steve McQueen <laughs> yeah, made. Like that, and that's too yeah, but it didn't that's... have twenty four stars in the greatest epic ever film, Josh. And it didn't have that's it true, it did not. didn't have direct connective tissue, right? Because those were mm-hmm. separate stories. Should we list the stars in this, or would you like to list them as we approach <laughs> each th- story? I think we'll list them as we approach each story. Yeah, it's okay. not overwhelmed the listeners with. Yeah. Um, so for me, I had never seen this film before. I had heard of it. It occupied my mind much like Josh's as one of the kind of epic westerns from the era. This was one when I chose this year. I was not particularly looking forward to. I was like, I need to check this off the list, but this is going to be uh, stilt- stilted and glib and basic and naive and stupid. Um, I found that I was kind of right, but I also kind of found it charming, and it was an easy, breezy watch in places for me. Um, I get the yeah. I get the appeal of it. I didn't love it. I've got some big problems with it. Um, just basically that I think it's it's about as deep as bathwater, um, <laughs> and 
there's some things we need to talk about at the beginning to get out of the way that need to be mentioned. But if you hang up on them too much, you just can't watch the movie. And that is, here are the first lines of the movie. This land has a name today and is marked on maps. But the names and the marks and the maps all had to be one. One from nature and from primitive man. Holy yeah. shit. I, um, and it's not... Believe it or not, I bumped on that too, TJ. Uh, and it's not It's not just the like uh, corniness of it and the grandiose like, hey, westward expansion, manifest destiny are great things. Um, yeah. You know, the, I mean, I could just sit here and like deconstruct this entire thing. Um, it's not just that line. It's that that attitude runs through that spirit runs through the entire film. And if you can't, I'm not saying you should ignore it, but if you can't just kind of sideline that, I don't think you can watch this movie. Yeah, it yes. carries, I think, what you're talking about, that that sense of kind of pride in a yes. certain chapter of American history that is not shown with any nuance here. It's, I mean, well, I take that back. There are, there are some exceptions. There are certain characters. Um, once we get there, I want to talk about the Henry Fonda character. I know that's a few chapters away from our discussion, but there are some exceptions where I think the film might be touching on an interesting discussion that it chooses just not to, to engage with thereafter. It's a strange, it's a strange imbalance. It was certainly a movie of its time, made in a time when uh, media certainly prioritized the perspective of white people above all others. And I think you're right, TJ. If you can't just like acknowledge that, then you're going to have a rough time with the movie. But that said, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, honestly. With those opening lines, I was kind of expecting worse from the subsequent movie. And like it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as I feared it was going to be. Any thoughts? Well, yes, but... I think you're letting it off the hook a little bit too much in the sense that, Maybe. like, yeah, any movie with John Wayne in it is not going to, like, be woke, right? Yeah. Um, but but this is 1963. This is not 1938. And you have had already uh, High Noon, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You're going to have The Wild Bunch in about six years. Westerns are maturing and getting smarter and growing up and thinking about the legacy of the the harmful legacy of the myth that they once so proudly and willfully purported and this movie feels like 20 years old on arrival i think yeah, yeah. and in fact you mentioned john wayne i'm struck by the fact that despite despite these both the stagecoach and the searchers not being films that necessarily do a, any great service to native americans there's more nuance, I think, in the characters for sure in those movies than there is in this film. And so there's a little more nuance in the story of the American West in those films. And they're both older than this. They're both 19, what, Searchers is 56, I think, and and um, Stagecoach obviously is 39. So this movie definitely has forebears that have been, as you're, to your point, have been kind of pushing the envelope and trying to tell stories that are um, a little more involved. And this movie doesn't really care to spend too much time doing that. So let's jump into part one. Uh, part one is often referred to as just the rivers. Um, it, it takes place in 1890, sorry, 1839, 1839. And that's where we are introduced to the Prescott family. 
as well as Linus Rollins. So the Prescott family, um, the two daughters are Eve Prescott and Lilith Prescott, played by Carol Baker and Debbie Reynolds, previously mentioned. Uh, Carl Malden is the patriarch of the family. Uh, his wife is Agnes Moorhead. She pops up again. Is yeah, this our third Agnes movie, I think? And again, loved her in this. More on that later. Um, other other names you might know that pop up in here. Walter Brennan is Colonel Jeb Hawkins. And then Lee, Lee Van Cleef is credited as the River Pilot. <laughs> he's of course. Of, he's one of Brennan's like, minions or yes, family yes. members. Yeah. And then the incredibly sexy... James Stewart as Lionel Rawlings, uh, who's just the absolute dreamboat of these Prescott sisters. When he comes in on his canoe, um, they are just uh, the canoe is not the only thing that's wet. Let's just say so. Uh, okay. For the rivers portion, uh, this was directed by Henry Hathaway, and um, what do you what do you guys think of the first section, the rivers? Uh, is it weird? This might have been my favorite section. I thought this was actually pretty good. No, this was my favorite section also. So. Okay, good. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I, I guess we'll get into this, but like all, four of the five sections have like a, a build to like a big set piece, a big like action set piece. And I, I kind of liked this one, which is a a uh, White River um, runaway raft situation, which I thought was uh, actually well shot and pretty exciting and pretty harrowing. And um, I liked... I don't know. I just like Jimmy Stewart. I like watching Jimmy Stewart on screen, even if he's kind of in a hokey mountain man. Like, I would never in a million years buy Jimmy Stewart as a mountain man. <laughs> that shot people and was hanging out with Jim Bridgers and whatever. And, well, uh, yeah. I got some beaver furs here if you want to you wanna give me a meal for a night, you know. Um, and then he chugs that whiskey. So. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. The way he, like, yeah, he, the way he, like, balances the whiskey on his shoulder yeah. to, like, take a swig of it. Also, I don't believe that a thirsty Jimmy Stewart would be satiated by a big swig of whiskey, but maybe I just need to... <laughs> Get a better imagination. Um, that said, though, I don't know. Uh, I th- um, I liked that there are double crossings, and you know, uh, a guy gets stabbed in the back, but then comes back and you know gets revenge. Yes, and uh, a lot of story. I think this is probably one of the longer ones of the five, too. Right? This has got to be maybe the longest. Yeah, I think so. It is. I think yeah, so. I think it. I... But it it like like you said, TJ, about the rest of the movie, it feels pretty breezy. It moves. Um, a lot happens here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this was good. Yeah. I maybe don't like the Jimmy Stewart getting with Carol Baker part, and I realize that's like a big part of the story, but um, well, I guess. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Ken, what do you think of the rivers? So I don't mind. I should emphasize. I actually love. I, I really love Jimmy Stewart. He's one of my all-time favorite screen actors, and I love him in anything. I think Josh used the right word. I found this film, uh, this chapter, and I think it sets up the rest of the film fairly well. I found it to be a bit hokey. Um, if I'll be honest, watching it, it reminded me of something I imagine I'd watch at the, the um, uh, museum under the gateway arch in St. Louis. Like it, it feels like a little piece that somebody put together to kind of explain life for the homesteaders moving westward uh, back in the back in the 19th century, it's very very simple. It moves fairly swiftly. I, I don't think it drags at all. Um, I think you're you're you've nailed it, Josh. That it, it actually moves pretty briskly, despite the fact that it's one of the longer chapters. Um, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not really a, relating to any of the characters all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of taken out by some of the exchanges, like. 
the dialogue, particularly from Jimmy Stewart's character, is distractingly silly. That's kind of what I mean with the the Jimmy Stewart Carol Baker part is like most of the dialogue in the section is like them wooing each other. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Can the... I can I read part of this actually? I was just about to say I kind yeah. of have quotes. <laughs> oh. Um, so this is. Wait, do you guys want to do dramatic reading? Yeah. Um, All right. I hear. Let me post the section in the chat and ken and i'll do ken would you like to be debbie reynolds or would you like to be linus rawlings i'll i you know what i'll do <laughs> i'll try debbie reynolds oh time. okay all right <laughs> that's fine wait it's not is it debbie reynolds or is it carol, Are you is carol it baker? baker no it's eve yeah it's carol, it's baker. carol sorry so yes yeah. okay <laughs> all right so linus jimmy stewart walks up to find eve has made a bed using his blanket and green leaves well, I ain't had a soft bed like this since the last time I come east. Uh, why'd you do it? Ain't polite to ask a girl why she done something for a man. No, well, I reckon my manners ain't much at that. Anyway, I sure thank you. Good night, ma'am. Eve stamped in close, facing each other. Prolonged silence. Are them engine girls pretty? Well, now I reckon that all depends on how long a man's gone without seeing one. How long has it been since you've seen a white girl? I ain't quite sure why you asked that. How pretty do I look to you? Well, man, uh, ain't you being a little bit forward? Well, you're <laughs> headed up river and I'm headed down. There's no time to get these questions answered. Woo! Spicy. That was some sexy stuff. I mean... <laughs> okay, couple things. Couple things. Number one... Ken needs to always play our young sexy. <laughs> he missed a calling as an ingenue. Number two, number two, I'll, I'll have to make a decision in the edit, but I was giggling throughout that entire thing. So you, you either heard me giggling, listening to this back, or I had to cut out my giggling, listening to this back. And number three, and most importantly, uh, TJ, your Jimmy Stewart is very good. I just never realized how close Jimmy Stewart sounds to Bill Clinton. Oh. And the idea of Bill Clinton being hit on by Carol Baker and like Please. flat turning her down, just like made me giggle even more than i was already giggling so great job thank great you job all around. see i thought Jim, oh awesome. jimmy stewart's got a little bit of jiminy cricket you know um well ain't that swell yeah you're right because it's like you miss um, that mix that with bill clinton you know well ma'am ain't you being just a little bit forward <laughs> anyway, sorry josh <laughs> um you hear though in the dialogue the as i mentioned earlier the prioritization of the white perspective because it's like oh you see a lot of indian girls when was the last time you saw a white girl blah, 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 blah. and i realize she's like you know hitting on him but at the same time it's like i don't like that that's that bumped me you know sure. but you know it's it bumped me no bumped me no more than the spencer tracy opening narration it's well just... it's she has to go there because her really sultry accordion playing wasn't doing it for him <laughs> earlier um i like when carl malden's like i've got two daughters i'm trying to marry off honey get that accordion out and start wooing some boys <laughs> and to i think to, to debbie reynolds character she plays or to her credit excuse me she plays her character a lot more um reserved and put off by all of this exchange but carol baker and jimmy stewart like I don't feel there to be a ton of romance, but it's it's played as if they they've just suddenly, rather like on first sight, fallen for one another, and they're in each other's arms so quickly, like it plays it plays very rapidly from the point in which he shows up to the point at which they're embracing one another, and she, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's <laughs> not the only movie from this time period that is guilty of. Oh no, 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 I mean, not at all. 
romances in the 40s, 50s, and 60s just seemed, or in this case, the 1830s, uh, just seemed wild. Uh, but can we dig in like the, the meat of what this is a bit? Yeah. Like, I think the other reason I thought this was the best section is that there's a lot of um, stuff about like, I think about the the title, how the West was won. So it is trying mm-hmm. to like you're trying to like draw bigger conclusions about the like little microcosm story in front of us. And so it's like a family leaving a farm that wasn't producing to go search for better life out west. That's what this family is doing. They are traversing the West in search of a better life. And so like Jimmy Stewart, the mountain man, is like, uh, you know, a solo entity. You know, out in this unsettled land, he's not part of a family, but it is like him meeting Carol Baker is like domesticating him. So it is like about the homestead and how this family is looking to establish a homestead out west. And then Carol Baker is meeting this man and like, you know, possibly going to create her own homestead in addition to the homestead her family is seeking. And like the fact that as Jimmy Stewart's riding up in his canoe and the family sees him, they're initially distrustful because they're like, maybe he's a pirate. Maybe this is a ruse. We need to be careful because this is a lawless, unsettled land. And therefore there are bandits out here who might try to take advantage of the lawlessness. And turns out he's not one of those people, but he does encounter that exact thing. Like the next day he goes to this liquor store that turns out to be uh, a, a ruse for bandits. And so like, again, kind of the, the rhyming there, of like them being distrustful of him and him like, not being distrustful enough of the next people he encounters, you know. Um, one, one could say, and then like one could say, actually costs the Prescott family because by trusting him, yeah. they're more trustful of the next group of people they encounter, who turned out to be the same. Who are actually, yeah, bandits. exactly. Yes. And then again, like the climax of all this is like the unsettled West, like gets the best of them, like the 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 wilderness, the wildness. In this case, the river. Uh, is too much to handle for this unwild, tamed, domesticated family, and they lose their mother and father. And they're actually rescued by the wild mountain man, Jimmy Stewart, who, like, gives that up in order to become domesticated. I don't know. There, I, feel, I feel like there's a lot of ideas swirling around here, and, like, you know, again, like, rhyming plot points and beat points. I thought it's like, all pretty interesting, actually. You know, and I thought, you know, after this section was over, I'm like, oh, this movie actually might be pretty good. I'm actually pretty excited to watch the, the other the four. one. The, the one thing that this is just an aside um they're in the west and they run into whitewater rapids like in va- in, in like canyons or, or val- mountain valleys aren't they supposed to be in ohio at this point i believe is as far as they uh, get yeah because is this the erie canal <laughs> it is aren't they traversing, they the, initially canal? Yeah. traversing the erie canal but they managed <laughs> to find whitewater rapids in yeah, the west you know. i'm using uh, air quotes here. are they in like what are they going up to missouri or something is this like nebraska maybe i don't know where this where this is well, they don't get any further than ohio though because later <laughs> in one of the later chapters we find oh, out i guess you're right the wow, rollings okay. are still in ohio even uh yeah. even there, linus there might there might be some fast rivers in pennsylvania <laughs> or whatever i don't know <laughs> have you ever been whitewater rafting in pennsylvania Ken? i have not then That's, i guess you can't really comment on it exactly yes it's true <laughs> if you're out there please comment uh for us uh, listeners, if you're aware <laughs> Uh, any any whitewater rapids in the Pittsburgh to Columbus area. Something that worked well for me, a couple things worked really well for me in this section. So when he, Jimmy Stewart, finds out that the, the father, Zeb and Rebecca, have drowned, um, really, qu- it's a really quick reaction shot. He just kind of turns away, and it's in almost a full shot or a three-quarter shot where it's his whole body. And I was thinking... Why wouldn't you cut to a close-up? 
here. And there's two reasons. One, Cinerama. Yep. But two, it whether this was intentional or not, this is the effect it had on me. Death is just so common out there. And things like this are really unfortunate and tragic, but they happen rather frequently, rather commonly. And I think that's that's why I was able to accept the they just fall in love really quickly as well, was like, she was really wanting herself a man. And you probably don't come across many prospects as you're <laughs> traveling west in the Ohio whitewater rapids. So I think a lot of the times it was more a marriage of convenience. And I think that that played out there. But that final decision where, you know, Eve the whole time was talking about wanting to go back to Pittsburgh, wanting to go back to Pittsburgh. She's resisting the thrust west. Um, and then Prescott says that, you know, he wants to marry her and he'll stop being a mountain man and move back east with her to Pittsburgh. But after she Rollins, lost her. not Prescott. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We're talking about Linus. Sorry. Um, it will we'll, um, move back east with her to pittsburgh but she's like because of what my family has been through to move back at this point will be like sort of undoing that and i want to keep their effort significant so for her the movement towards the west is something that has to do with honoring the legacy of the family that that was lost mm -hmm. there and i thought that was um kind of a nice moment a strong decision to set up what some of the rest of the film was going to be back be about theme wise I agree. Yeah, that's good. Also, just Agnes Moorhead, like losing her shit on the raft as they're drowning, was she was great. I like her. I like yeah. particularly during that that uh, rapid sequence when they're on the, the the raft and they're trying to herd the younger ones into the tent as if it's much yeah. safer to go inside. It's just a tent that's set up on, mm -hmm. a, on a bunch of logs tied together. It's not yeah. going to do much. <laughs> Well, and she should have won an Oscar if it, not for that bitch Claire Trevor. But um. that's a reference to our Johnny Belinda episode. Please refer to the 1944, 1948 series for context on that joke. Moving on to the planes, part two, the planes. So we're going to jump ahead in time about 12 years. This takes place in approximately 1851. And Lilith, Eve's sister, Debbie Reynolds, chooses to go back east and finds herself performing in music halls in... St. Louis, yes. of all places. All right. Yeah. Cool. So she... That's, uh -huh. Sorry, that's what I was thrown by, because as far as locations go, she's in Ohio. She wants to go back east. But eventually, uh -huh. at some point in the intervening time, she's joined a troop of people who are moving about, I guess, and she happens to be in St. Louis when we rejoin her story. So yes. she's made it She's made it even further west than her sister did. Mm-hmm. There, she attracts the attention of professor, professional gambler, Clee Van Valen, that's hard to say, played by Josh Gregory Peck. There you go, Atticus Finch himself. Atticus Finch. Um, she later inherits a California gold mine, and when Cleve joins the wagon train taking her there and avoids paying his debts in the process, uh, they court her along the way, but she rejects them both, thinking that they're just after her gold mine. Um, they survive an attack by the Cheyennes. And find out that her claim was worthless. So he leaves. Lilith returns to work in the camp's town dance hall. And um, ba -ba -ba, later when she's singing on a riverboat and Cleve is the passenger, he is so taken by her voice. He leaves the poker table, tells her he doesn't care that she's poor, and proposes to her. They, she accepts the proposal. And thus is the section called The Plains. Um... As we mentioned, Gregory Peck pop pops up here. Robert Preston 
is in this section. Thelma Ritter yes. shows up as Agatha Clegg. Thelma Ritter, you might know from Rear Window. Um, and what did you guys think of the planes? Let's start with Ken this time. So, uh, I first of all, I, I, I loved the opening. I thought it was very funny, thanks to Spencer Tracy's narration. Being from St. Louis, hearing anyone describe it as the busiest fur trading center in the world and the noisiest, bawdiest, most uppity town west of New York. <laughs> I, I was in giggles, I'll be honest. Um, just that's how we start the chapter off. Um, I quite liked the, the set dressing and the production value early on um, in this. And I actually quite liked the um, the kind of her introduction to Clegg, played by Thelma Ritter. She's got to find a way west. And she manages to attach herself to kind of a an ex, I guess we'll say Ritter's character is supposed to be more experienced, no nonsense, kind of a, a a pretty decent older female guide for a younger woman trying to make her way westward. But then, of course, she's being courted by two competing men. On the one hand, you've got um, a, a gambling addicted uh, Atticus Finch, and on the other hand. A rough and rowdy music man. Uh, so you got Peck and, and Preston. There's not a whole lot of what you would call romance in this chapter, despite the fact that she's being courted by both of them. But again, it's kind of a reflection, I guess, of the time period and and the atmosphere. They're moving west, and they there's this sense, particularly from Robert Preston's character, well, she needs a man. Um, you need somebody to take care of you particularly moving into this dangerous westward land. I mean, she's trying to go all the way to California from St. Louis. It's going to be a long, arduous journey, and you need somebody to support you. Um, but she's got this kind of determination about her that we see from Debbie Reynolds in some of her other movies. Um, so, I don't know. It's working for me to a degree. Again, I think the word hokey comes across. that fr- It stuck with me in the first chapter, and it kind of... I feel it all the way through the rest of the film. Um, there is one point in this chapter in particular that kind of throws me off, and I can only assume it's in there because Debbie Reynolds is the lead here. There's just a random musical moment where she breaks out into song singing, I think, Raise a Ruckus Tonight is the name of the song. And it kind of took me out of it for a moment because it just comes out of nowhere. Ken doesn't want any ruckus in this film. I don't know. I don't know. Just, it's just, it's a very, very MGM musical um, scene. And the rest of the film doesn't play that way at all. So it's just, it threw, it threw me a little bit because I wasn't expecting it. Um, and I completely apparently blocked it out of my mind if I'd seen it the first time, or maybe I went to the bathroom the first time I saw this movie and missed it completely because I was not expecting the the musical number. All right. I kind of liked it. I was like, I, I get the Debbie Reynolds appeal here. She was, I thought she, she had some good energy. Uh, Josh, what'd you think of this section? I like this one quite a bit too. Um, I think it has a good, like, clean setup, clean premise. Uh, as Ken just said, it's like a, oh, David Reynolds is singing in St. Louis and she needs to get to California. And this gambler wants to take her there so he can get a piece of her mine, but also because he likes her, but also because he wants a piece of the gold mine. Uh, again, that's a that's a clean, good setup. I think the, like, set piece in this one, as I mentioned the other in the other section, like, four out of the five have, like, a, a big set piece. In this case, it's a... Is it the Cheyenne? Yes. Like, uh, kind of, are they attacking the cattle trail or whatever? Like, yeah. Or the wagon yeah, trail? Yeah, the Cheyenne I don't know, but it's attack like a... on the, the, the wagon train, which is actually a phenomenal scene. Or 
Yeah, and Gregory Peck is like jumping between horses, like unhook them from the from the wagons, and wagons are toppling over. Um, I was I was struck. You mentioned that that very stunt uh, in this movie. I was struck by how much this sequence reminded me of Stagecoach. And you got John Ford mm-hmm. directing one of the other chapters. He's not actually directing. Yeah, not this, this one. one. Yeah, no. this is uh, Henry Hathaway again. But I, it was immediately brought to mind Stagecoach and the. Um, I think it's an Apache. Um, attack on the wagon train in that movie but it's very it's eerily similar you got the guy jumping between the two horses you've got somebody being dragged under the horses uh it's a really really impressive um bit of stunt work in this sequence and it really pays off i think it's a thrilling bit of action speaking of illusions or being reminded of other movies this reminded me the most of a segment from the battle of buster scruggs uh which is the one with zoe kazan where like it similarly is just a, a a wagon trail like I, I guess that was like a thing back in this time period but like the wagons would travel in like a single line single file and the thought was like you know a big group would be safer than just traveling in a single wagon in case uh you were attacked by whoever was living out in these in this then their hills um and that also similarly has like a attack by native americans that is not at all like adventurous or fun or like set PC. It's like very scary <laughs> when it happens in a uh, Buster Scruggs and very upsetting. Uh, if you remember how that sequence ends. Um, but yeah, uh, I thought this was good. I-, I-, I didn't like as much as the first one, but um, this worked for the most part for me. What'd you think of uh, Gregory Peck? Uh, I don't have much of a relationship to him, honestly. Uh, I mean, I've seen, I, th- I think I've seen to go Mockingbird. I'm actually, I'm actually not sure. I assume I have at some point, but like, uh, I don't know if I've seen him in much other much other stuff. Um, he strikes me as a modern guy, so it's weird seeing him in like a in the eighteen fifties to me. Like, yeah, I don't know. Just just seems like a face who's seen television. I guess that's that's kind a of modern phrase. That's my note on him as well. I, I I like him. I think he has a lot of gravitas as an actor, yeah. but he feels out of place in this movie to me. Um, yeah. Did you see the original Cape Fear? No. Okay. I've only seen the the Scorsese. Okay. Cape okay. Fear. Um. Ken, what do you think of Gregory Peck? Um, I I don't have much of a relationship to his character in this movie. I quite like Gregory Peck. I've seen Cape Fear, um, which is a brilliant movie. I mean, you can't go wrong with either one. But him and him versus Robert Mitchum in the original is um, an excellent bit of time if you've got it to to spend with a, a thriller like that. Um, he's he's very good in To Kill a Mockingbird. I'll be honest, Gregory Peck's never been my favorite. Of, of the Golden Age actors. I also like him in Roman Holiday. He can play an effective uh, romantic lead in a, in a lighthearted movie. But um, here, I'm just not sure I get enough from his character. Because again, this is one of those where this chapter, I think, is a bit rushed on character development. We get a really terrific action set piece in there. And I think that plays really well. I, I, I love that sequence. But the rest of the story, I mean, she's not with cleave all that much or all that long i mean he's got some moments where he shows bravery um particularly during the attack and immediately thereafter um but then they manage to get to california very quickly find out that there's no gold that her gold the the land that was left to her and then they're suddenly apart and then they're magically back together in the very next scene when they're they're on the riverboat um and I just, I'm not getting a whole lot from him, or Robert Preston, for that matter, who's another actor that I quite like in, in movies. I think he's pretty good in The Music Man. I think he's great in Victor Victoria later on in his career. Um, and here, there's just not a whole lot for them to do. They're just supposed to be stand-ins, basically, 
for these basically she needs two men courting her or competing trying to gain her affections so that we can see debbie reynolds kind of brush them both off at times yeah she's trying to show her independence in the fact that you know this is not a woman who absolutely needs a man um if she's going to choose anybody she's going to choose just because she wants to be with them yeah yeah um I noticed this one ends very similar, actually, to the previous one. So there's a parallel between the arcs of both of the sisters in the sense that the man has to um, kind of go back on a previous principle or a previous stance that he had in regards to a relationship with her and kind of compromise in order to be able to do something with the affection that he feels for her. So this one, I think, kind of sends Lilith off on the path that Eve was sent off on previously at the end of the last chapter, and I thought that had a nice kind of echo to it. Um, and yeah, that's that's the planes. That's all I've got for the planes. Do you guys have anything? Nope. Nothing. Nope. Nothing really to add. I, I do. I reemphasize, I guess, that I love the appearance of Thelma Ritter in here. I mm. wish I'd gotten more Thelma Ritter. She's unfortunately yeah. only in. She the old lady. Yeah, she she's like yeah. Um, she's only in this chapter, but boy, do I love Thelma Ritter just about anything. She's, a, by the way, throwing that out there, she's a six-time Oscar nominee, all for supporting actress. She's not nominated yeah. for this movie, but like Thelma Ritter, she's she is working hard in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. people really like her, and you can see why I think. If you just give her a little. And bit I, of Thelma. I feel bad for her. She always plays this like uh, the the older mentor second to some hot young lady. Yeah. So like. <laughs> You know, Debbie Reynolds get hit on in here, and she's like, "What'd she want? What'd that guy want?" And she's like, "Ah, children. Oh, he came to the wrong store." You know, <laughs> and and it's the same sort of dynamic that's in Rear Window, where she's opposite Grace Kelly, yeah. and anybody opposite Grace Kelly is not gonna, you know, look that great. But Thelma Ritter, we see you, and you're gorgeous. Um, Indeed. Yeah. All right, love Thelma. <laughs> Let's move to the Civil War. Uh, Civil War, obviously, this section takes place over 1861 to 1865. This is the section directed by Mr. John Ford. Also, the shortest. Like, this really quickly. (laughs) Which is an interesting thing about the movie uh, presenting some hardships, but (laughs) overlooking some pretty major horrible things that happened in history at this time. Um, So we meet a kind of grown-up... Rawlings' child, Zeb, played by George Peppard, and we have learned that uh, Linus has joined the Union Army as a captain, and he's killed in the Battle of Shiloh. So Zeb, against the will of his mother, um, joins joins the Civil War effort. He bumps into a disillusioned Confederate who seems to be deserting, played by... Russ Tamblin. Russ Tamblin, yes. Uh, this year also in The Haunting which yes. we watched um, when this was not a podcast. And oh. by chance, <laughs> by strict chance, they happen to bump into Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman, <laughs> played by Henry Morgan and John Wayne. John Wayne plays General Sherman here. And what amounts two to first names, two first names. A, a very, very brief cameo. And yes. uh, the Confederate then realizes, hey, I'm actually not deserting. I have an opportunity to kill the two of them and win major points for the South. But Zeb jumps in, tries to prevent it, and ends up killing him. Um, so afterward, he rejoins the army. When the war ends, he returns home as a lieutenant and learns that his mother 
has died after Ly- she got word that Linus died. She no longer had the will to live and she just dies. Um, so he, Zeb, renounces the share of the family farm and leaves wanting a different life. Yeah, I don't uh, want to run over. I, there's a couple points in this this chapter that I don't want to let escape, uh, let, yeah. let get by us, despite the fact get that... Get to them, him, Ken. Um, but I want to start with the end, just because <laughs> he shows up. Oh, Ma's dead. They sit on the porch. They have a discussion. He agrees, like, I'm just going to... You, you know what? It's yours. The farm is yours. I'm going to head on west. And then he leaves. Okay, this is the 1860s, and he's going to head west. There's a good chance the two of you will never see each other. You can't stay like a couple days or a week before just running out. Like, you just came back from war. You're talking with your brother. Oh, Ma's dead. Okay, well, you can keep the farm. Bye. Like, he gets up and walks out without even going into the, the, the homestead. Um, it's just It's just a weird kind of rushed interchange that I think is... Uh, reflective of a lot of the interactions between characters throughout this movie. The fact that there's no emphasis really in the movie on the fact that when people or families went in different directions or split up at this time period, there's a good, there's a, there's a decent chance you might not ever see one another again. You might write letters, but like, for example, uh, the first, at the end of the first chapter, we know that Lilith decided to, to move on while Eve's going to stay put where the parents died. And by the end of the film, we learned that it doesn't sound like they ever saw each other again. Um, Because Zeb, we'll get there, but Zeb's meeting his aunt for the first time in the last chapter. And so a lot of that plays out throughout this film. I feel like there's just a disconnect in how people interact with one another. It's a ferocious, dangerous world that they're kind of interacting with. And there seems to be no pause for their relationships to one another which i'm not sure if that's intentional or if the film is just trying to move at a faster clip um another point um i do actually like this even though the film doesn't um engage enough with the war i appreciate the fact that zeb is forced to kill russ tamblin almost immediately after emphasizing the fact that he has yet killed he's yet to kill anybody in the war right and in fact he'd prefer not to Hence why he's about to run off and desert with this guy. And, and they, they both said, I don't really know why we're doing this. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of this war? Mm-hmm. You know, they both said that. And then he immediately has to kill him. Yeah. And it's, I, I did appreciate that because I thought that that spoke quite a bit to a reality of the war, in fact, that they're trying to comment on. And uh, I really appreciated the, the fact that it comes right after. And you can see the pain on his face as he's looking down. Like, why? Why did you make me do he that? He literally says, "Like, why? Yeah. yeah, why did you make me do that?" He says, "Those words escape his lips." Yeah. Um, Josh, your thoughts on the Civil War? Just uh, the Civil War in general. Uh, <laughs> come on, Ken. Uh, anti. 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 So that's that's me. I'm I'm anti. Not a fan. Um, I think that this section is to me it was the I don't know if it was the simplest, but it was among the simpler sections. And maybe less to read into than the first two. Um, no set piece, as I alluded. Uh, the other four have them. This one doesn't. Which I think makes uh, it so strange that you give this to John Ford. Yeah. Yeah. And you allude to the Battle of Shiloh, but don't really yeah. show anything. I guess the set piece is just the dude stabbing Russ Tamlin in the heart with his bayonet. That's that's the set piece. Um, I guess it's kind of alluded. There is like some stuff here about like what the Civil War was like, i.e. brother versus brother, kind of like grudgingly killing each other that's kind of like the the microcosm we're supposed to read into i guess and um 
then also like him leaving home with his mother alive then coming home and like his parents are both dead like uh you know family being torn apart by death i noticed that as well that again we have a rather unceremonious kind of off-screen death that mm, yeah. i would have expected a movie like this to be treated more kind of melodramatically but i think in in not doing that what you don't see is showing the kind of ubiquity of loss and just how kind of precious and fragile and precarious everyone's lives are at that point yeah and they do make mention again to to think about the title of the movie and how that this fits in they do make mention several times how like they've heard tell that there is no war out in california and that the civil war isn't really touching the west uh so this is western tennessee where this takes place which like it's not California, so like they are like on the western edge of the war. So they are talking about like going a little further west to avoid this, I guess. And I guess what's the movie trying to say that like you know this was part of the settling of the west was this this conflict was was as much part of the story of the west as you know wagon trails. I guess I, I don't really know. I thought this was okay. I I, I you know I, I didn't really think much of this section though. The thing that stuck out to me the most about this section was. I think Ford is the one that most successfully comes up with solutions for shot composition and Cinerama. Um, the use of foreground and background. If the horizon's at the top of the frame, it's interesting. <laughs> Sorry. If it's Cinerama, it's bullshit. Um, <laughs> and the, the use of foreground and background in that um, central sequence with the two generals and then Zeb and Russ Tamblin. Um, where you're allowed, he's using the the width of the screen there to allow for a lot of space between those two things and really to have kind of two scenes going on, foreground and background, that I thought was a really interesting solution because you're not really able to get anyone in close up that much. So it, it's as the, the two young men are further away, it's kind of harder to tell them apart. And I thought that yeah. was a really interesting point to make about to, to underscore the point they're making there about the Civil War and why are we doing this and, you know, what's so different between us and all of that. Um, I did the, I did want to note Raymond Massey plays President Lincoln yes. um, in Briefly. like a 30-second scene. <laughs> and he apparently played Lincoln yes. like that was his thing. Yeah. Uh, several TV appearances, several film appearances, stage like one-man shows. And this was the last time he played Lincoln because he's like 66 here. Um, also, the, the Corporal Peterson that brings news at the beginning, uh, Andy Devine, yes. is in Tuck. Stagecoach and Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and that's Friar Tuck yeah. from uh, yeah. with that very yeah. recognizable voice there. Um, one, one, Maid Marion's going to give a kiss to the winner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the Rob, the Disney Robin Hood. It's, oh, it's great. It's great. Um, it's one of my favorites. And, you know, a note about Russ Tamblin, even though he's not in this that much and he's very young in his career, he has what I sometimes refer to in a denigrating fashion as theater kid energy. He does. Um, yeah. But I I think he – I really like watching him in these 60s movies. Like, he's really good in West Side Story. Um, yeah, and he's great in West Side Story. Yeah. And he's still alive. He's 88 and was – Dr. Lawrence Jacoby and David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Yep. Yes, he was. Um, the original series. Sells, but then, selling those gold shovels. Yeah, shovel yourself out of this shit. Um, so he's he's great. Again, about a 65-year career or something at this point, and um, always glad to see him. 
Is he still around? He's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's still 88 years old. Yep. Um, yep. I, I will. Hopefully by the time this comes out, he's still around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I have, to, I have to record a drop in. <laughs> I was actually uh, impressed at the very beginning of the this chapter. Um, we see Eve again, obviously, and she's aged. The makeup team did a pretty good job of aging her up effectively so that it's not obvious. Um, and I think it's important because she's playing off of George Papard, who's playing her son, when in fact he's three years older than Carol Baker. So this is one of those odd situations where you've got, and because they're emphasize, they have to emphasize their youth in the first chapter, um, but they need her back in the next chapter. She's actually younger than the man playing her son, and it's just it, a shout out, I guess, to the makeup and hair team because they really have to do a bit of work to make it make it seem appropriate all right well that'll end the civil war peacefully uh let's move then <laughs> to thank you the so-called railroad 1968 so we're about three years later here this is part four of five and the backdrop here is two competing railroad lines the central pacific railroad and the union pacific railroad that are expanding and trying to open up new territories so zeb are son, a main character from the last section, becomes a lieutenant in the U.S. Cavalry, trying to maintain peace with the Native Americans with the help of a buffalo hunter, a very scraggly, homeless-looking Henry Fonda. Uh, Jeff, Jethro Stewart is his name. And we learn that he's an old friend of Linus's. Remember, Linus was a mountain man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jimmy <laughs> so, Stewart. Uh, yeah, well, this is my friend Henry Fonda. Uh, I'm rather fond of him. Uh, when... <laughs> The railroad man, Mike King, played by Richard Widemark, violates a treaty by building a Native American territory. Um, the Native Americans Building respond. within a Native American territory? Yeah, is that what I said? You said building a Native American territory. Building a built that. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, they respond by stampeding Buffalo through his camp, killing many. Disgusted, Zeb resigns and leaves town. I think this is the last section that's. Um, directed by Henry Hathaway. Um, for my money, this one, I, some things I liked, some things I didn't. It drug a bit because I don't find George Peppard very compelling. And right. when you don't surround him with a whole lot, I mean, thank God for Henry Fonda is kind of my note on this. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Um, Josh, will you, will you uh, kick us off with your thoughts on the railroad, please? My eyes started to glaze over a little bit in this <laughs> um, Actually, Cards and Table, I, I watched the first three in one sitting, and then I watched the last three in a second sitting. And I say that I, I watched the Civil War twice and, like, didn't really get a ton out of it either time and didn't get a ton out of this one either. Um, granted, I only watched this one once. But, like, my point is, like, I really enjoyed the first two, the uh, Jimmy Stewart and Gary Peck stories, and then the last three with George Pappard, I did not enjoy as much. And I don't know. I, I Again, not unlike the Civil War, I didn't really find much to this one. Um, I thought the Buffalo Stampede scene was like very, very cool, and I thought yeah. that was excellent. Um, again, the the set piece that is in four of the five of these things. Um, but other than that, though, like I I didn't really care much for this one. I guess it it's, it just seemed like it was like them arguing, "Hey, you built this in the Indian land, you shouldn't have done that." Them just kind of saying that over and over again until the Indians inevitably respond by hurting a stampede of buffalo through the land through, or through the uh, whatever the transition thing. Ken, your thoughts on? Uh... The railroad. I'll I'll be honest. This is actually maybe my favorite chapter. Of Get the, the hell out. Yeah. So Ooh. here's the thing. It's still frustrating though to me, 
And it's frustrating before because I see this as holding the most potential for, I think, a very compelling storyline. Richard Widmark has got this kind of Daniel Plainview feel kind of going on. Like he's he's a greedy he's a greedy, greedy man who's looking to just profit off the land and I'm a train man. And this is my son, my partner, H W train. <laughs> minus the char- minus any attempted at charm. Um yeah. But between that and Henry Fonda's character of Jethro, um, that character I'm quite I'm quite taken by the potential interaction between the two of them throughout this film, or at least the juxtapositioning between the two men. The fact that Jethro is of the very much of the land, he is what Linus could have been had Linus not settled down when he went back east, and he's he reminds me a bit of a, I guess a nicer version of Ethan Edwards from The Searchers. Fact that he's just a guy who doesn't fit in with the civilization. Um, he's he lives out on the land. He he interacts better with the Native Americans and has absolutely no interest whatsoever in seeing the land taken over by settlements and homesteaders. And is actually you can tell from the way he talks to Zeb, opposed to the railroad. And there's this concern. This is the first time I think we really see any attempted. At nuance in the film or maybe it's accidental but this there's a discussion going on here by inserting the henry ford character into the film that this movement westward isn't necessarily as great as the rest of the picture is trying to make you believe the fact that the the railroad is bringing with it an influx of people westward and richard widmark's character is suggesting oh yeah but that's decades away he's wrong they show up almost immediately they're starting to show up to hunt um, the buffalo, they're starting to show up to, to try and set up homesteads on what has been what has traditionally been Native American land. It's going to create more deadly interactions between the Native Americans and the settlers moving west. And ultimately, we know what happens. The west is, in fact, settled. But is it necessarily to the benefit or the, the good grace of the, the people who are already there or the land itself? And I love the fact that this is the chapter that I think first introduces that opportunity or that that kind of dialogue i just i'm frustrated by the fact that it doesn't take it anywhere further that's my only that's my only reservation with this it's frustrating because of the opportunity i see in this chapter that would be in the extended edition ken's (laughs) extended cut yeah the four hour one um this one for me was the one that interestingly but perhaps most fumblingly dealt with the cinerama um, the shots of the buffalo stampede yeah. are, are stunning, but because of the, the smile vision, as they approach and then get closer and then go away, uh, it's they're, they're not getting any closer to the lens, but because of the lens, it looks like they're coming at a diagonal towards the lens, and they really bow out as they pass. Yeah. And, you know, you can point to that being like, yeah. But I thought it added a really kind of terrifying and surreal element to the to that stampede that you wouldn't have gotten from a normal lens. So regardless of whether or not that was intended, and I tend to think it wasn't, um, I thought it had a re- very like distinguishing characteristic that I haven't seen in any other movie because no other movie used that technique. So I, I found that to be uh, of note. And the other thing with that was there's a scene with... Um, Zeb and Jethro, and they're in like a cabin speaking. Yeah. And they're drinking something. And as one of them, it, it's a it's like a back and forth, a shot reverse shot. 
But because of the Cinerama, in the extreme right side of the frame, you can see the, the off-person camera, like, reach in with their hand and grab the cup while the other person's talking it's it's, oh it's very bizarre it it looks really really weird and i think it's because they're in such close quarters there was just no way to do a shot reverse shot without getting that in um at which point i would say you should have just done like a a single two shot to hold the whole thing but again it was it i don't know it just stuck out to me as kind of a fascinating little um incident of this technique so yeah um i don't have anything else on the railroad section do you guys have anything else on the railroad section no let's great mustache and henry fonda (laughs) yeah yeah he's he's really he's really bringing the rugged look um oh yeah not strength not not by not as far as being very strong but the (laughs) kind of the kind of rugged look that suggests you know what he hasn't met a shower in a few years Mm -hmm. wasn't he in another big western of the time was it um, he's in the good, the bad, and the own? ugly. Okay. He no, is, no, no, no. He's in no. He's in. Once upon a time in the west. Yeah. Once upon a time. You're now. Which is we've got Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach both in this. movie. That's right. Yeah. So that's we've right. Got the, we've got the bad and the ugly in this movie. There's <laughs> no good. Uh-huh. Um, well, I was just going to say to your point, Josh. Um, he's actually a villain in Once Upon a Time in the West, mm-hmm. though. So mm-hmm. we do see a darker mm-hmm. Jimmy Fonda in another, or Henry Fonda, excuse me, in another western within a few years of this. I think those two movies uh, were more or less the same movie in my mind. How the West was won and Once Upon a Time in the West. But now that I've seen one of them, uh, I will no longer confuse the two. I should see Once Upon a Time in the West. I strongly recommend Once Upon a Time in the West. I think I've seen. I think I've seen Henry Fonda's intro oh. in like maybe a film class or something like that. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I show I showed that in a film class and my kids were so frustrated with it. They're like, "This is so long and irritating, and I can't." It was, shut it was up, too, kids. I know, I know. Well, it's the tic- if I may quote Jack Nicholson, and as good as it gets, <laughs> shut up, kids. It's the Tic Tac generation, you know. Um, I should pull that audio and just drop it into episodes. <laughs> complain about the youth. Yeah. Shut up, kids. Uh, the other one I would want is David Lynch going. It's just such a sadness <laughs> on your fucking phone. <laughs> Get uh, real. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Moving to the last section, taking place in 1889. This section's called The Outlaws, and this one is the one that is directed by George Marshall. Uh, it's set in San Francisco. We've made it all the way to the West here. Widowed Lilith auctions off her possessions to pay her debts and then travels to Arizona. Um, inviting Zeb and his family to oversee her remaining asset, which is a ranch. Zeb, who is now a marshal, and his wife Julie and their children meet Lilith at the Gold City's train station. There, he runs into the outlaw, Charlie Gant, played by Eli Wallach. Uh, Zeb had previously killed his brother in a gunfight. Oops. Uh, when Gant <laughs> makes threats against Zeb and his family, Zeb turns to the local marshal, uh, Lou Ramsey, played by Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. Uh, however, Gant is not wanted for anything in that territory, so Ramsey can't do anything about it. Nonetheless, Zeb decides to act, suspecting that Gant plans to rob the train's gold shipment. He prepares an ambush with Ramsey's reluctant help. Gant and his gang, who include cameos by Harry Dean Stanton and Carrie Elways, are killed in the shootout. Wait, wait. no, no, no. <laughs> no, not Carrie Elways. TJ's going to keep slipping Carrie Elways into every movie we talk about. They're killed in the shootout and resulting train wreck. Lilith and the Rawlings family travel to their new home, and thus the West is settled. Um, 
The Outlaws. Ken, your thoughts on this final section? Uh, again, it feels kind of rushed. There's particularly, particularly when it comes to Lee Jacobs, um, sheriff, I feel like we, we get the first interaction between the two of them. Essentially, Zeb is saying, um, yeah, we've got a problem. Charlie Gant's back and we need to stop him. And Lee Jacobs like, I, I can't really, my hands are tied. Can't really do anything. And then the very next time we see him, literally a couple scenes later, it feels a few, we'll say three scenes later, he's basically like, yeah, okay, fine. You might be right. And so there's not a whole lot of, there's not really a whole lot of pushback. Um, and as far as the challenge that uh, Zeb might face here, the stakes don't seem very high because ultimately he gets the sheriff and the sheriff deputies kind of backing him. It, it all happens rather quickly. Um, okay. So I feel Rushed like... too much. Again, yeah, I feel like the stakes, they don't raise the stakes quite high enough and then very quickly get to the climax. I think a part of that has to do with it. To me, it doesn't feel like and this is a very subjective perspective here, but I don't feel like there's much of a development or through line with Zeb in the last three chapters. Yeah, it feels very episodic to me. Um, yeah. I don't feel like to the this point is, that it might it might as well be three different characters, not the same person. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I really would have liked to see this be more of a three episode arc for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But Josh, what do you what do you have on this section? I liked it more than the previous two, but I also didn't see a ton in this one, I guess. Um, but I, to, to the credit of the segment, I like the setup where it's, um, you know, a lawman who has dealt with somebody in the past, but like there's kind of some unfinished business. And so that kind of puts the lawman in danger. Um, there's more stuff about like familial bonds, how uh, the lawman killed this guy's brother. So then that, then that law, that outlaw is now going to target the lawman's family. Um, there's stuff about like how justice is carried out in this area, which is like, you know, marshals kind of like tracking down outlaws rather than like more of an organized police force. And like, in fact, like the police force he goes to can't do anything because that guy hadn't, hadn't done any wrong. So the, like the lawman kind of has to take justice into his own hands to an extent a little bit. Um, so like there's ideas like that swirling around, but, um, and there is a set piece. There's a, train robbery crash situation not not a crash there's no crash right just a train robbery okay um i thought it was pretty good yeah eh, you know there's a train crash all right right does it crash yeah the train crashes i can't remember if it crashes because they're going not a good sign that i can't yeah. remember <laughs> i couldn't remember either the train crashes because yeah. the train is going one way it breaks apart and the train st- the back half starts rolling back the other way and they manage to very quickly reverse direction of the engine and then chase I have no it memory back, of this chase it back down the, se- the second to last sentence in the wikipedia page plot summary gant and his gang are killed in the shootout and a resulting train wreck oh there was in fact a train wreck <laughs> yes you guys both fell asleep by that point you- <laughs> i i am about eight days removed from this but i still should have remembered a freaking i'm train a day wreck. removed from this <laughs> i don't remember the train wreck um oops uh yeah so uh, Ken, Ken, sorry, you were going into your thoughts on this section. Uh, well, no, I already, I think I already talked about the fact that I just, it's, it feels a little rushed, and I agree with you that I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that we haven't gotten enough about Zeb. It just feels like he's just taking these little moments of his life and not really connecting them well enough to see any arc. 
first time we see him is during the war then you know suddenly he's he's trying to protect a, a corporate you know railroad development and now he's suddenly been a marshal he's got a family and kids and meets his aunt for the first time and oh yeah he's got to protect his family from this random thug that he previously encountered it just i'm not sure where the through line for zeb is and i'm not sure i see any development from george peppard either in the character i i think here's where it the movie reveals itself to really kind of be a like bulletin board of ideas of the west rather than a particular yeah. story um and maybe the movie's trying to do too much because a lot of westerns i think better westerns didn't try to include like everything that happened in the mythical american west it would kind of just focus on the the there's really five movies in this um and maybe that's kind of the movie falls a little bit under the weight of its own ambition and i think there are plenty of other westerns that probably that, that would better speak to the ideas or kind of times and moments and experiences in history that this film is showing through the five chapters i think you could go find five other films certainly when it comes to um the the outlaws section certainly the the i think the plane section certainly the civil war section there are better films that i think tell those stories rather than if you come here and watch these shorts which effectively they're short films 30 to 45 minutes each um in fact i don't even know the longest one isn't even 45 minutes probably um so these little these little film shorts they're just kind of touching on these experiences of the American West through the lens of like a singular singular moment and a singular group of people and trying to connect them by, Hey, it's the same family and their experiences, but there's no development among the characters from beginning to end. It's just, this is what they experienced. Uh, Ta-da, here you go. And end credits. Let's bring Spencer back in to do his wrap up narration. Josh, you heck yeah when I said Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, man. Who wouldn't? You a big Lee J. Cobb fan? I'm just just, just disappointed that uh, juror number eight and juror number three were not in the same second <laughs> no. together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, or is it juror number nine? Which nine. I think it's nine. Think it's, it's nine. Okay. Yeah, I think but so. But Lee J. Cobb is definitely juror number three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, little 12 Angry, man, 12 Angry Men reunion here. Um, exactly. Yeah. So let's let's get to then. Ken mentioned that that final narration. We get these stunning helicopter shots that are obviously helicopter <laughs> shots with a dirty lens, <laughs> with more dirt on the lens. <laughs> yeah. And again, and sorry, this is a little bit of a long section ish. But l- listen to this closing narration again. The West was won by its pioneers, settlers, and event- adventurers is now long gone. Yet it is theirs forever, for they left tracks in history that will never be eroded by wind or rain, never plowed under by tractors, never buried in compost events. Out of the hard simplicity of their lives, out of their vitality and their hopes and sorrows grew legends of courage and pride to inspire their children and their children's children. From soil enriched by their blood, out of their fever to explore and, and be, came lakes where once there were burning deserts, came the goods of the earth, mine and wheat fields, orchards and great lumber mills, all the sinews of a growing country. Out of their rude settlements, their trading posts, came cities to rank among the great ones of the world. 
all the heritage of, of people free to dream, free to act, free to mold their own destiny. With all due respect to Josh, the shot of L- an L.A. freeway does not really sell that idea <laughs> or really sell the, the promise of what came to be thanks to these pioneers and settlers. I love I love visiting Los Angeles. I really do. But the, the interstates and the, like, the cross-section of multiple freeways interchanging with one another in an urban center, I think speaks more to a question, particularly if you're watching this in the you know, 21st century, what with all the criticisms we have, um, thanks to the, the explosion of everyone driving cars around the world, particularly in the U.S., and emissions and what it's done to the climate, I ask kind of, did they really, or sure, not, not did they win the West, but should they have? Because again, the same conversation that struck me during the railroad chapter came back during this closing narration because I'm thinking to myself, okay, some of the images you're showing me, I'm not sure that these settlers were good for the land that they apparently, quote, won. This movie has a myopic vision of all of these conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, do you have thoughts on that stirring final narration? Yeah, as you're reading it, the only thought I had was, man, we really think highly of ourselves, yeah. don't we? <laughs> like, it really is just like patting us, patting ourselves in the back for just being so great and for building a city out west where there once was not a city. Okay, like, great. I guess, to Ken's point, whenever I'm stuck in track on the 405, I can think to myself, somehow this is Gregory Patton. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you got to think 1963. So amidst, like, the height of the civil rights movement, this movie is going, everyone is free to act and free to mold their own destiny. Eesh. Everyone is free to go out and take land from Native Americans, provided you're light and I was going to say, yeah, everybody in the film is shown to be, it's a white, a white actor playing a white part. How the West was white. Um, all right, so um, let's get to final thoughts here. Um, so we can wrap this up into also the question of, what do you think about the film's best picture nomination? How does this film hold up? You know, all of those questions that we usually ask. So we'll kind of go around and do a last impression. And what do you think of the Oscar glory that this film was, was reigned with Josh, you go first. Uh, number one, I again have the film on mute and I'm watching the last section. And I just recognize Harry Dean Stanton. Like, yeah, there he is. That's him. I, I see him now. Um, I think, it makes sense this movie was nominated for the Oscars it was nominated for because, like, every every famous actor in the world is in this movie. So, like, it's hard, I feel like it's kind of hard not to. And it's also very, like, grandiose and ambitious. So, it's, like, it's trying to make a grand statement of the history of American culture and American Western culture. And so, whether or not it succeeds, it's at least trying for something. So, like, its nominations make sense. Like, this is the kind of movie that, like, the Oscars would nominate. It's... It's grand, it's epic, uh, there's a lot of great shots and great set pieces, and it's also, like, taking a narrative swing. Um, but to your point, I'm not sure it really lands. I think that your point about this being, like, a collage of ideas about the American West is really astute, and maybe doesn't hang together that well. But, like, as we've discussed, some of it does hang together. Like, some of the segments do hang together. Um, I think the first and second one in particular, fifth one kind of, I guess, I don't know. Um, I thought this was this was pretty good in in total, and um, 
as we've said, some segments work better than others, but like mercifully, the ones that work the best are the longest and the ones that don't work as well are the shortest. So like I can kind of live with it. Also, as we said off mic, this is a two hour and 44 minute movie, but with a overture and an intermission and a pretty long end credit sequence. So it's really like 225 <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> it's spread over five segments. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm rambling, but I thought this was pretty good, but like not amazing but like there's definitely a lot to recommend about it and like it's oscar success however much it had i think makes sense to me okay ken what do you think i i think it's i think it's trying to be something big and i just don't think it it works and i i mean you're right you're right it is but it's not honestly being being a famous western title i mean this is a very famous western film it's just not one of the great westerns. I just I, I have I don't have any interest in revisiting in particular. It's like a pastiche of westerns. Yeah, almost. yeah, pastiche is a good yeah. word. Um, or again, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out here to finish up my my thoughts. Hokey again. This movie is just too hokey for yeah. me. And schmaltzes in season. Yeah, exactly. I just it's it's strange that this is here, given the fact that um, I think the year before um, you've got the man who shot Liberty Valance, I which I don't think was nominated for best picture. And yet this oh. one is the Western that suddenly everybody's embracing. So it's a little odd because there's so many better uh, movies that are trying, again, trying to do what this movie is doing much better. Yeah, I think my final thought is it was more watchable than I anticipated it being. It was. I, it was very watchable. Yeah. I agree with you guys that it it's sort of like a, a tent that gets rained on too much and then collapses. <laughs> um, that's just the, the image I have of what this movie is. It is um, grossly naive. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you have to at least sideline that or else you can't watch this movie. But it is there. And for me, the most interesting thing about it, and I w- legitimately was fascinated by this, was just watching how they tried, sometimes succeeded, and sometimes failed to deal with that cinerama. And then what it looks like now when you watch it on a flat TV, which is not the way it's intended. But I think it just creates some very unique images, kind of incidentally. And that's what I took away um, most from the movie. Hmm. But. Cool. Uh, so that's it. The West has been won. Um, that's how the West was won. That's how it was won. Now we'll find out how it was fun. Uh, next <laughs> next week, Lilies of the Field. Lilies of the yeah. Field. This movie's three and a half hours long. So I'm kidding. That's incorrect. Um, it's 94 minutes. It's three minutes. half hours long. Yeah, 94 minutes. Can you believe it? Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Um, it's breezy. There are, there are episodes of TV shorter than this film. Or sorry, longer than this film. Uh, so anyway, Sydney Poitier and a bunch of nuns. Lily is in the field. Um, that's our film for next week. Thank you so much for joining us. And have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bye. I, I, I reckon I've seen that varmint for the last time. That was pretty good. Yeah. No notes. Very good.